Pocosin Baptist Church, it is my privilege to be here and to fill the pulpit of my dear friend, uh, your pastor, Hobson. I don't take these kind of invitations lightly, number one, because honestly, I do not like being away from my own church. Uh, I love pastoring Nansman River Baptist Church. I've done so for going on eight years now. I love that people, they are my family, and to be away from them this morning uh, is, brings some sorrow into my heart. But it is joyful to be here with you because of the partnership that our churches share together. A little over a year ago, your church joined the Pillar Network, and Hobson joined the pastor's group of the Pillar Network of Hampton Roads, and we became fast friends and committed to gospel ministry alongside of uh, one another. Uh, you sent one of your own, Elizabeth, last year with some ladies from my church uh, to partner with our missionaries in Rwanda and alongside of our church plant, the Great Joy Bible Church of Kigali, Rwanda, uh, to do some children's ministry training. We have other events uh, planned for this year. Our students, just in a few weeks, will partner together uh, for a Disciple Now weekend and other things coming uh, later this year where our churches will strive together for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spread of God's kingdom. And then, so it is because of that partnership that I say it is a joy to be here uh, with you this morning as we study from God's Word in Matthew 13. Now, Sam has already read that for us, and if you have not turned there, I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word uh, as we will spend uh, quite some time together seeing what Jesus says here in these parables. Before we do that, I know we have just prayed, but I would like to pray for us once again. Father, would you now, through the preaching of your Word, Illuminate our hearts with the truth that comes only from you. God, as the rain falls from outside, we pray that you would rain the truth from your spirit into our lives. Would we hear it and be changed by it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled, The King's Stories, Weeds, Seeds, and Leaven. As introduced to you by another friend, Kenny, uh, last week, Jesus tells seven parables concerning the kingdom of God in Matthew 13. This week, I'll have lunch with my friend Kenny, and I'm going to point out to him that I believe he got the easiest of the parables. <laughs> At least he got the most familiar of them. God, Jesus tells these seven parables recorded for us by the Apostle Matthew in Matthew 13 because it takes seven parables to communicate the important yet difficult concept of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a simple yet difficult concept for us to grasp. This is because we are so limited by our constant struggle against only seeing things through our own worldview. The cultural milieu in which we are raised forces us into a perspective that is so limited that we think we understand something when we do not. Before we begin the exposition of our passage in Matthew 13 this morning, I want to quickly look at a couple of verses in Acts chapter 1 that will help us see the important yet difficult nature of what we will endure to study together. Acts chapter 1 tells 
the story of Jesus and his disciples before his ascent and his ascent to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, we're told in verse 3, presents himself alive to his disciples, appearing to them many times over the course of 40 days. And then Luke records this for us, speaking about the kingdom of God. So when we think about the disciples of Jesus, those who were with him during the majority of his ministry, those who not only got to hear about his public teaching, but as in the case of Matthew 13, twice were able to go into the house with Jesus and have those parables explained to them, who were able to hear on multiple occasions of his death, his future death and resurrection, that benefited from more information from the Savior than any other person alive. Yet when they get to verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, they look to Jesus at the end of those 40 days and say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Even after those three years of daily teaching from Jesus, even after those 40 days of teaching from the resurrected Jesus himself, the disciples still missed the point of the kingdom of God. Their cultural perspective was a very hard nut to crack. You see, they were raised to believe that the Messiah would come and rid them of their greatest enemy. Not sin, but Rome. They were raised to believe that one day a Messiah would come who would reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem and would, by might of the sword, rid them of their occupiers and run Rome out and reestablish God's kingdom on earth, the nation of Israel. And it is of this kingdom that they inquire of Jesus In Acts 1, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All of that teaching, all of that time with the Lord, all of that private time in the home with Jesus not speaking to them in parables, but as we'll see in Matthew 13, giving them true explanation. Their cultural outlook still limited their ability to perceive something as great as the kingdom of God. Now, while we have a different cultural outlook, we must also recognize that the influences and perspectives that we have based on our own upbringing and our own worldview also, just as it did for the disciples, limit our ability to truly understand the nature of the kingdom. So this is hard work we need to do today. It is hard work that Kenny helped you do last week. In seeing the story of, or the parable of the different soils that the gospel seed falls on. And only the good soil produces true Christians. You'll see additional parables about the kingdom of God next week. Continuing to help you as my friend Nathan will be here proclaiming God's word, Lord willing to you. This week, here's what I want us to see. There in your printed outline is the main idea of today's sermon. That understanding the nature of God's kingdom helps Christ's followers remain faithful and on mission. 
Jesus is, in Matthew 13, going to provide for us some details about the kingdom. He's going to do so in parable form, as he often did. And it will require us to apply ourselves to seek understanding, because if we can understand what Jesus is saying about the nature of the kingdom, it will help us to persevere as followers of Jesus and help us to live obediently to his mission for his church to make disciples until he returns. Our exegetical outline of these verses in Matthew 13 will include a lengthy parable paired with an explanation, as you saw last week. Additionally to that, we will have two short parables paired together because they communicate the same point. And additionally, as you saw again last week, an Old Testament quotation of why Jesus teaches the people in parables. First, we will consider the lengthy parable and its explanation in a section entitled, The Distinct Nature of God's Kingdom. Jesus is going to tell us a parable and then provide for his disciples later in the home an explanation about how the kingdom of God is distinct. Look back with me at the parable in verses 24 through 30. Matthew records for us, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up and wheat, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the lengthy parable in this section of Matthew 13 that Jesus tells to show us the distinct nature of the kingdom of God. Later, we're going to, Jesus is going to explain to his disciples the meaning of that, but let's just first consider the story. It is, as Jesus often did, it shared an agrarian parable in an agrarian culture. He was sharing and teaching with farmers and fishermen. So most often his parables were about farming or fishing. Jesus told parables that made sense to his audience. For us though, most of which I imagine are not farmers or fishermen, a little bit of explanation may be necessary. Now, we understand the basic ways that a farm works, that a farmer plants some seed and the Lord sends rain and those seeds produce, uh, grow into plants which produce fruit and vegetables which is then harvested and sold for a profit. But there are many uh, enemies to a farmer. There are pestilence and there are weeds. And in this case, the enemy of the farmer comes into his field and sows weeds. He doesn't just sow a random kind of weed, though. It would have been assumed by the people that that are hearing this, the type of weed that Jesus is describing. It is a weed called darnel. Darnel is what is known as a mimic weed. 
It would have been the bane of wheat growers in Jesus' day. And while we have modern techniques of fighting against Darnell, modern farmers still today, modern wheat growers still fight against this very weed. And here's why. It looks like wheat. It grows like wheat. And particularly in its juvenile phase, it looks identical to wheat. This plant clearly a result of the fall and the toil of the earth is a, uh, is, is a type of weed that frustrates farmers because it not, does not produce a seed that is good for eating, but it mixes itself with the other seeds that when they would be planted for the next year, they would grow again. This weed had developed the ability to intertwine its roots Amongst the wheat, which is why Jesus says, if we go out and try to pull up the weeds now, we'll end up pulling up the good wheat itself. So this is the background. This is the understanding, the cultural understanding that we need to be able to see what Jesus is saying. Now, fortunately for us, later in the day, Jesus and his disciples go into the house and one of the disciples, just as they did with the parable of the sower and the soils, they ask Jesus back in the house, why did you tell that parable? What does that parable mean? Let me just provide for you quickly a good hermeneutical practice. If Jesus tells us what the parable means, that's what it means. That is not going to be the most profound thing you hear today, but it may be the most important, okay? That we don't get to make up our own interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds because Jesus clearly explains it to us. And when Jesus explains something to us, we're going to take him at his word that he knows what he's talking about because he does. So let's consider that then, starting in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus defines for us, who is represented in this parable. Each component of the parable in an allegorical way represents something that Jesus now explains. The sower is the son of man, that is Jesus. The field is the world, the creation that God has made. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Those are those who have come to faith in Jesus. We can call them the church. The bad seeds are the sons of the evil one. The weed seeds are the sons of the evil one. The harvest represents the period of time at the end of the age. So the harvest has not yet come. The, the reapers represent the angels. These are the spiritual representatives of God who will bring about the end of the age. And then what happens? Just as in the parable, when the wheat has come to maturity, they are able to go and separate the wheat from the weeds, and the wheat is bound together and placed in the owner's barn. The 
Weeds are bound together and placed in the fiery furnace. And what does that represent? That represents eternal life in Christ, in heaven with him for all eternity. And the fiery furnace represents hell. It represents a place of separation from God where those who are outside of Christ pay the price for their own sin for all eternity away from God. There are a few things I want us to notice about Jesus' explanation in this parable as we think about the distinct nature of the kingdom of God. First, I want you to notice the patience of God in the story. There's great patience that the farmer demonstrates to us, representing the Son of Man, representing Jesus and our Lord, and that he demonstrates great patience to us. Other parables concerning the kingdom demonstrate God's same patience. In Matthew 21, also in Mark 12, I just preached this. We're preaching through Mark at our church. I just preached this passage a few weeks ago. There's the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants is a story about a man who goes and plants a vineyard. He's a foreigner, and he goes back home, and he leases his vineyard to some other men to run. And eventually, he wants the profits from his Vineyard, and so he sends some servants. They represented the Old Testament prophets through John the Baptist, sends some servants there to take the prophets, and they beat some and they kill others. And finally, he says, I have a son, I'll send my son to them. And he sends the son, he says, Surely they'll listen to my son. And he sends the son, and what do they do to the son? Jesus, looking forward to the end of his life, he tells that story during the last week of his life, looking forward to the end of his life where he'll be crucified. What do the, what do the tenants do? They kill the son. So eventually, the owner will come. Jesus says the only conclusion to the story is that the owners will come. Destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. But in that story, like in this one, God demonstrates great patience to us. God showed you great patience that while you were still dead in your trespasses and sin, he sent Jesus to die in your place so that you would come to faith in him. Peter, in his second letter to the church, writes to us of God's patience in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with us. And for every day that Jesus doesn't return, it is just another demonstration of his patience towards us. Just as he was, Christian, patient towards you, he is today being patient towards others. And what we are hearing from around the world, maybe you don't know this, but there are more people coming to faith around the world right now than have ever come to faith in the history of Christianity. We actually live in one of the only places where Christianity is shrinking. We live in one of the only places where the church is shrinking in most of the world. See, we're, again, our culture, we're so myopic, we think that Christianity only exists here. There are actually more Christians in Africa than there are America and Europe combined. Christianity is growing at such a rapid pace in places in Asia that our missionaries can't hardly even keep track of it. The gospel is spreading because God is demonstrating his enduring patience so that none might perish, but that all whom he has chosen in his son, Jesus, would come to repentance in 
him. The second thing we need to see, though, is that there is a definitive end in sight. And a distinction will be made in the end between the sons of God and the sons of the evil one. This is how Jesus teaches this parable to his disciples. He says that the good seed represents the sons of God, the church. And the weed seed represents the sons of the evil one. These are those in the world who have rejected the message of Jesus by their action, who have remained dead in their trespasses and sin. And they are sons of the evil one. Jesus further explains this in John 8 as he talks about the Pharisees there. He says in verses 42 through 47, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I listened to my friend Kenny's sermon last week, and he explained the same concept to you with the parable of the sower and the soils, that some seeds, some gospel seeds, fall on good soil because God has made that soil ready to hear the truth of the gospel. The others, even those who may look as if they are bearing fruit for a period of time, are not sons of God. They are sons of the enemy. They are sons of Satan himself. And a distinction will be made. We may not, with our physical eyes, be able to tell. We may not know on this side of heaven, on this side of judgment and the resurrection, who it is that is truly in Christ, but God knows And he is the one who will make this distinction between the sons of God and the sons of the evil one. In several weeks, probably months, if Hobson preaches at the same pace that I preach, you'll get to Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, I I get from your laughter that he preaches slowly. I, I do too. In Matthew chapter 25, is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew, it actually spends the longest of the Olivet Discourses. Luke and Mark's are briefer. Matthew records it over the course of two chapters. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus teaches concerning two things, I believe, the destruction of the temple that would happen in 70 AD, telescoped with the end of the age. That Jesus kind of intertwines these two events, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And it seems as if they're right next to each other, but in reality, in the course of history, they are not. And Jesus makes it clear during the Olivet Discourse that there is a distinct nature to his kingdom. In, that, in this parable, instead of using wheat and weeds, he uses sheep and goats. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So here we still have the Son of Man, the angels, the reapers, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fires prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The kingdom is distinct because in the end, all people will be weeds or wheat, sheep or goats, sons of God or sons of the devil. In Matthew 25, that, in that parable, this, this parable of, of sheep and goats, you may think, well, I can easily tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. And that's, again, because of our cultural perspective and our worldview. We picture sheep as these big, fluffy, white things. And we picture goats as these skinny little things that some of which, if you scare them, they fall over, right? That's what we think of as sheep and goats. I have had the, uh, the benefit over the last decade or so to travel to Africa a couple of times a year. And a lot of those trips were to West Africa, to countries like Nigeria and Niger and Mali. And in those places, they are still raising sheep and goats. It's still a very prominent part of the culture Uh, particularly the rural culture of those uh, countries where many people still raise sheep and goats. And here's the thing about those kind of sheep and goats, which were the same ones that existed in first century Israel when Jesus is saying this. It is very difficult to tell them apart. I mean, very, very difficult. If you see a herd, and they'll often run together, if you'll see a herd of sheep and goats like off in the distance, it would be difficult from maybe 100 feet, 200 feet to be able to say that one's a goat and that one's a sheep. Now, when you get up on them, there's a couple of things you can tell. Their tails are different and their ears are different. But if you look at them from a distance, they all look the same. It would be like standing out of a field looking at wheat and weeds that are all, supposed, that are all growing and looking alike. So we may not be able to see it. Jesus uses these different analogies for us, things that are difficult to tell apart. But he knows. The farmer knows what is the wheat and the weeds. The shepherd knows which are the sheep and the goats. And God knows who his sons and daughters are and who are the sons and daughters of the devil. So then what do we do then in the meantime? What is the wheat supposed to do in the meantime? We live as wheat, as sheep, as sons of God, as salt and light. We live distinct lives regardless of the prevalence of evil surrounding us. And yes, there is evil surrounding us. But can I help you for a minute, church? That evil's not new. The church has been surrounded by evil for 2,000 years. Jesus was surrounded by evil. The New Testament church was surrounded by evil. The church fathers were surrounded by evil. Evil has existed around the church and sometimes finds its way into the church. So what do we do? We don't wring our hands over the evil around us. We live as Christ has called us to live, obedient to him, a distinct people. I don't worry a whole lot about the direction of our culture. There are things I lament about the direction of our culture, but I don't worry about the direction of our culture. I worry about the direction of the church. I care about the direction of the distinct people of God and how they live regardless of what the culture around us does because the kingdom of God is distinct. Number two, the surprising nature of the kingdom of God the surprising nature of the kingdom of God. 
Next, we'll consider two brief parables that teach the same lesson. Verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that fell and took a uh, that took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, in contrast to the previous two parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. We do not get an explanation of this one, but I think the understanding of it is somewhat easier for us so the disciples don't ask about it. I do believe these two parables are both saying the same thing. I think Jesus, Jesus makes the same point twice because his audience was made up, again, in an agrarian society of men and women. And here, I think, is the assumption that Jesus makes. The men are going to understand the agricultural parable better, and the women are going to understand the domestic parable better. Because in Jesus' day, it would have been the men who would have worked the field and the women who would have baked bread. And so Jesus tells two parables with the same point to men and to women who are gathered. And here's the point that the kingdom of God is surprising. Now, because there are negative elements in the previous two parables, right? There's the, there's the soils that aren't good, and there's the enemy who sows the weed seeds. Some try in these two parables to find a negative element. Some see negative elements in the birds of the air. Some see a negative element in uh, the leaven, because leaven very often in Scripture does carry some kind of negative connotation, but not always, and I don't think that's what we're supposed to see here. I think the brevity of these two parables and the similarity of these two parables means that we should just take them simply for what they are saying, and that is that out of something very, very small can come something very, very large, that we would be surprised if we were to put a mustard seed in the ground, Jesus calls it the smallest of the seeds. You ever seen a mustard seed? I mean, it's this tiny little wrinkled up thing, right? And I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard plant before, but mustard plants grow the size of a man on a horse. That's how big these things get from, from something so tiny. And then there's probably some bakers in this room, and you take just, just a little bit of, of leaven, Let's just call it yeast for our, you take a little bit of yeast. It doesn't take a lot of yeast, right? You put too much yeast in baking, I've baked a little bit of bread in my life. You, you put too much yeast in it, you're going, no, it's going to take over your whole oven, right? It doesn't take much for it to do its work. The mustard seed and the leaven are representing the same thing for us. That They are this surprise something so small can grow into something so large and we should stand in awe of the harvest that only God can accomplish. This is the lesson of the mustard seed and the leaven. That as we relate it to the kingdom of God, what we see is that God is doing something far bigger than we could ever imagine. If you had never seen a mustard plant before and someone showed you a mustard seed, or if you had never seen yeast before and someone showed you a yeast and you tried to explain to them what those things would become, you may not believe it, but once you see it with your eyes, you're surprised by it, and so should we. I think we should constantly be in, in awe and maybe even a state of surprise by what God is doing in his kingdom 
around the world. And as we stand in awe and we stand in surprise of what God is doing, it reminds us that we are not the ones doing it. Here's what I love about preaching in a partner church. And by the way, I'll take some time later this year. I'm going to do a sabbatical like Hobson does, and he's going to return the favor. He's going to come preach. Maybe a hard, he's going to preach from Ecclesiastes for me. That's what they're going to be preaching when, when I'm away. But here's what, I, here's what I love about preaching here and about other brothers in Christ going to come preach for me is that it's a reminder that Nanceman River Baptist Church isn't the only thing going in Hampton Roads as far as gospel faithfulness. And neither is Pocosin Baptist Church. That, that we're a part of something. And it's not a competition. We're not in a competition of growers because God is the one who grows. The Apostle Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servant through whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God is doing amazing things in his kingdom. And we are invited to just be workers alongside of him and stand in awe of what he does. About nine years ago, my wife and I adopted our youngest son, who is not all that young anymore. He's 13, about to be 14, uh, from India. And so we spent, it took us forever. It took us like three and a half years to adopt our son. It was a very long process. And I am a researcher at heart, so I learned everything I could about the nation of India before we traveled and spent a couple of weeks there before bringing him home. And so when I see things about India in the news, it just piques my interest still, even though we've not been back uh, in, in these nine years. But a couple of years ago, I ran across a news story about a man in northeast India known as the Forest Man of India. I would encourage you, this is just such a positive story, maybe tonight, don't do it while I'm preaching, but maybe this afternoon you could Google Forest Man of India. Uh, I think it was a, maybe a National Geographic story. It was somebody wrote this lengthy story about this man. It's really incredible. Let me just give you the highlights. This man lived in a place, lived on the uh, Brahmaputra River in northeast India, and the generation before him had deforested this island that sat in the middle of the river. The island was not small, it's 1,300 acres. It was two square miles, this island. And that previous generation in the mid-1900s had deforested the entire thing. Nothing would grow, nothing would live. They, they had removed all of the plant life. And this man would wake in his village that was on that river's border and would stare out at that island and said, I want to do something about it. So every morning he would get up, I believe at 4 a.m., and paddle his boat across the river and plant a tree. And then he would come home. And the next morning he would wake up and paddle his boat across the river and plant a tree and he would come home. And every day for over 40 years, this man paddled his boat across the river, planted a tree, and came home. Now, that 1,300 acres is a lush jungle. There, are, there is a herd of 150 elephants that now live in that jungle six months out of the year. Tigers have made it their home because this one man, paddled across a river every morning and began to plant trees. And so when they asked him about it, he doesn't own this island, by the way. But 
they asked him, these, these interviewers, they asked him, they said, how did you plant trees across two square miles? He said, I didn't. He said, I went every morning and planted a tree and came home, but eventually the jungle just took over. And he said something profound. He said, trees know how to plant trees. Man, what does that tell us about the kingdom of God? Is that we, the, the wheat, we, the mustard seed, we, that which God has planted within us, we are responsible for planting other trees, but ultimately it's not our work. The jungle takes over. The kingdom of God takes over. And we stand in awe of what God does in front of us. Number three, the eternal nature of God's kingdom. Here we move from parables to an Old Testament citation of why he speaks in parables. Jesus does this previously in Matthew 13, where he talks about their hearts being unable to hear. Here, he's going to fulfill prophecy. Verse 34 and 35, all these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus we're told Matthew here narrates for us why Jesus, a second reason that Jesus is speaking in parables. And it is to fulfill a prophecy that tells us, teaches us something about the nature of God's kingdom. And that is his kingdom is eternal. His kingdom is eternal. That Jesus is teaching them something that was hidden from the foundation of the world. Now, we talk about what Jesus does in new language because, in some ways, it is new language. Jesus establishes a new covenant, he tells his disciples. But it is a new covenant that fulfills a very old one. It is a new covenant that corrects a very old problem. It is a new covenant that God himself had planned before any of this existed. You see... You can trace your salvation not just back like I do to 1991. Seems like a long time ago now. Some of you trace your salvation back to the 80s, to the 70s, maybe to the 60s. Did you look back on your salvation and you traced its origins to you coming to faith in Christ? We trace our salvation not back to just that time. We can trace our salvation much further back, by the way. We could trace our salvation back to around 30 AD, right, where Jesus hangs on a cross, bearing our sin in our place, exchanging our sin for his righteousness, that our sins were crucified with him on the cross so that all who believe in him come to faith in Christ would be saved. But, you know, we can trace our salvation even back further than that. Paul writes at the beginning of his letter to the church at Ephesus, he says, blessed be our God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. No, hear me today, Pocosin Baptist Church, the kingdom of God is eternal in both directions. We often think about the kingdom of God as something we will enjoy later. One day after the resurrection in heaven, we will then know eternal life. We will then know what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. But Jesus began his ministry by saying what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, just like our salvation, is past, present, and future. It extends eternally in both directions. The kingdom of God has always existed. It has always been God's plan that he would redeem a particular, unique people for himself. And this is why he says, I will open my mouth in parables, citing Psalm 78. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. This has always been God's plan, that he would bring his eternal kingdom to earth. If we look at the passage that Jesus actually cites, it is in Psalm 78. If we read the surrounding verses, it illuminates our hearts some. The psalmist writes, give ear, O my people, to my teaching, incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter dark sayings from, the, from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Remember back to the first, that lengthy parable. We are not, the church is not the kingdom. The church is the seeds in that parable. The church is the agents of the kingdom. And how is it that the church is obedient to the kingdom of God during our time, we do exactly what the psalmist says happened in his time. We pass on the things that were heard and known from our fathers to our children. The church is God's agent for making disciples of the kingdom of God. You, Pocosin Baptist Church, you are the agents of God here in this time for his eternal kingdom. You have a role to play you have a part to play in this. You are not the only workers, but you are part of them. And I pray that you would remain an important part of God's work in his world, in his eternal kingdom. So what? I always ask this question. I'm not sure your pastor does. I always end with, so what? Because we've seen what the text says. Now, what are we supposed to believe or do because of it? So a quick statement. We should trust in the Lord's sovereign work in his world as we seek to live for him and proclaim his gospel. We should trust in the Lord's sovereign work for his world as we seek to live for him and proclaim his gospel. The kingdom of God represents the Lord's sovereign work in his world. And we as good seeds, we as the wheat, as the sheep, as the sons of God are called to live obediently and on task. Go back to where we started in Acts chapter 1. Remember in Acts chapter 1, is now going to be the time that you're going to establish the kingdom. Jesus says this to him. Verse 7, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father is affixed by his own authority. Oh, disciples, you still missed it. But, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. What do we do? We trust in God, Acts 1, 7, because we don't see it all. We don't understand it all. We don't know how that little seed grows into a plant the size of a man on a horse. We don't know how to take wheat and weed and separate them, but God does. 
And so we trust him, and then we obey the mission that he has given to us to make disciples, to make disciples. In the late 1800s, there was a Presbyterian minister named John Samus who became a professor at what was at the time known as the Los Angeles Bible Institute. It is now Biola University. He wrote over 100 hymns, nearly all of them on one of two subjects, trusting God or obeying God. And he was on the West Coast, and he had a friend on the East Coast who attended a revival and heard a testimony in a revival and penned some words and sent it to his hymn writer, pastor, professor, friend, who wrote some words, sent it back to his friend on the East Coast who put it to music and gave us this hymn that combines those two ideas. In part, the hymn reads like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. When in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or will walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sins, we will go. Oh, church, never fear. Only trust and obey. Let's pray together.